Hi, I'm Dan Jones. And I'm Mia Lee, and we are the editors of Modern Love at the New York Times and co-hosts of the Modern Love podcast. We read love stories for a living. And by love stories, we mean essays written by real people about all forms of human connection. We're talking about everything from first dates to funerals, from sibling rivalries to new love at 85. On our show, we're going to bring those stories to life. We'll hear from the writers and also from the people who are written about. Relationships are the most important things in our lives. And the people that tell us their stories are just so brave, like way braver than I think I am most of the time. Yeah. They're so honest and so vulnerable. And listening to the stories, I feel like you absorb so much wisdom and you get a sense that you're not alone. You can follow Modern Love wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. We hope you'll join us. New episodes are out every Wednesday. From the New York Times, I'm Michael Barbaro. This is The Daily. Today, confusion surrounds a devastating airstrike believed to have killed at least 200 civilians in Iraq's last ISIS stronghold. Two views of what happened. One, an unspoken change in strategy inside the Trump administration. The other, a push for this change from America's partners in Iraq, frustrated by the restraint of President Obama. It's Tuesday, March 28th. The bodies keep coming. More than 100 so far pulled from the rubble on this street in West Mosul. Eleven days ago, an entire city block in Mosul was demolished. In the week and a half since, the cause of that devastation has been murky, clouded by competing narratives of what happened on that day. Tim Arango is in Iraq and is reporting on the growing belief that the airstrikes were conducted by U.S.-led forces. So on the 17th, there was a raging street battle in this neighborhood called Mosul Jadida. It was packed with civilians because ISIS had brought civilians from other neighborhoods to use as human shields. The Iraqi special forces were advancing while the ISIS fighters were going house to house and dashing between buildings through holes in concrete walls. And then they took positions on the roof uh, as snipers and they were apparently pinning down the Iraqi special forces. Meanwhile, the civilians went downstairs to escape artillery and airstrikes. And that's when the special forces called in airstrikes to try to take out these snipers. I went there yesterday. Uh, the whole scene taken uh, in total was anguishing because there were the physical devastation. And even 10 days after, there were still body parts. I saw, you know, a charred arm covered in uh, red fabric that was sticking out of the rubble and bodies were being pulled. And, you know, one resident talked about Hiroshima. Um, and it's very tense because there's so many um, of the survivors and rescue workers in there angry and they're sleepless and they're anguished. And so it's just a devastating scene of, of rubble and rescue workers. And there's bulldozers just pushing aside wreckage. And when they get a body, they pull it up and, and the men around there will go and look at it. And if someone identifies them, uh, they will tell another person who has a leather notebook and he'll write the name down. But there was one where they pulled up a body and it was this fellow's um, uh, 
you know, nephew. And, um, you know, that was, that was quite anguishing to see someone identify their relative. And then of course, the other thing the Iraqis understand is they uh, are happy to have me there actually, because they all want to tell their story. They all want Hmm. the world to know. They want you to tell the story of what they saw or what happened to their relatives. What, what's the story they want you to tell? They want to tell what happened to their relatives and what they lost. And they want the world to understand, uh, their suffering and they hope it makes a difference in terms of how the war is prosecuted. What do we see about the U.S. role in the fight to liberate Mosul from ISIS through this attack and how it's changing? That's a great question because one of the things it raises is why was such a apparently big mistake made? And for the first two years under Obama of this war, the Iraqis always complained that the American coalition was way too cautious in the interest of protecting civilians. Now, under the Trump administration, the military is much quicker to approve uh, strikes. And of course, the Trump administration has said that it wants to speed up the fight against ISIS. Um, so it, it raises all those all those questions. Okay, but why the desire to speed this up from the American perspective, from the Trump administration's perspective? You know, Trump as a candidate talked about destroying ISIS. I would bomb the shit out of him. There's a determination, it seems, from the White House to delegate authority on military matters. I would just bomb those suckers. And not micromanage these sorts of decisions. And even though the America, it should be pointed out that Americans have said that there have been no formal changes in the rules of engagement for this war. They've said that in recent days, and I believe that to be technically true, but everybody I speak to says that the overall emphasis is speeding things up and that has impacted decision-making. Tim, can you draw a direct line for us here? How does a desire to speed things up result in deaths like these? Well, if the White House goal is to speed things up, even if there's no formal changes in the rules of engagement, I think that desire is going to be reflected in how military commanders make decisions on the ground. And so everything I'm told is that they are much quicker to approve airstrikes with less time to consider any risks to civilians. This might be a bit speculative, Tim, but would the Obama administration have done the same thing, do you think? You're right, it's speculative, but I I have been saying the last couple of days I could not have imagined that strike occurring in that area, especially after seeing it yesterday, because even if they thought there would be no civilians in that particular building where, Mm -hmm. where the sniper was that they were trying to take it out, it's such a densely populated area that it's hard to imagine taking out one or two snipers on a rooftop when you know civilians are in this area and not harming civilians. It doesn't make sense to me. The U.S. government now wants to speed things up in Mosul. But that's been the case for Iraqi forces for years. A video obtained by my colleague Rukmini Kalamaki demonstrates the complexity of this situation. Where did you get this video? So in 2015, the Iraqi city of Sinjar had just been retaken Mm -hmm. uh, by a combination of Iraqi and Kurdish forces. And back then, the front line facing Mosul was a small town called Bashika. And in Bashika, I met in, I would say, November of 2015 with a Kurdish commander who showed me this video. (laughs) A video that he had shot on his cell phone. And what it shows is four men who are digging a hole in the ground very close to the road that leads to his military base. You're seeing a barbed wire fence. Exactly. So you see a barbed wire fence. 
You see them digging a hole, you see them putting something in the hole and then covering it up. And the story he told me, and the reason he shared this video with me, is to express his frustration with what he saw as too restrictive rules of engagement under the Obama administration. Mm. So from his perspective, he's sure that these men were planting an IED, a bomb, right? And they're planting it basically very close to the road that leads to his base in the hopes of killing his men. And he says that he called the coalition. And the coalition, which would include United States forces? Which includes United States forces. And he says that a coalition aircraft flew over the area and was in direct communication with him. And when they got over there, they said, but you're not taking enemy fire. And he said, no, they're planting an IED. Mm. And the pilot and the coalition, you know, messaged back, but you're not taking enemy fire. His understanding was that that's the reason why they didn't take the hit, you know, that maybe these guys were just gardeners, you know, who were planting flowers. So because he was not under attack yes. by Islamic State fighters, yes. the U.S.-led coalition denied him the airstrike he believed was warranted to neutralize this bomb that was just put in the ground. That's his interpretation. I mean, he was saying that his own men were risking their lives, you know, to hold this particular outpost. And he felt that the Obama administration was just too tepid. And when you speak to Iraqi forces, this was an ongoing complaint about Obama administration. They just felt that their hands were tied, you know, that they had so many rules and so many restrictions that, of course, were designed to prevent exactly what's happened. But they felt that that was really slowing down the progress that they could make. I think it would be a bit of a surprise to most people to know that it's not just the U.S. government that wanted this all mm -hmm. to move much more quickly. Right. But that it's the Iraqi government, too, even knowing mm -hmm. that things like what just happened in Mosul, civilian deaths, could happen, might right. happen. right. Right. And it's not just the Iraqi government, I would say. It's troops all over Iraq, including Kurdish troops. This was a Kurdish mm -hmm. commander who gave me this. And in Syria, when I was with the YPG, which is the main Kurdish force that has been fighting ISIS, same complaint. Of course, they're not dealing with the fallout of what has just happened. The fact that we may have killed dozens, over a hundred uh, civilians, plays directly into ISIS's hand. Every single mm -hmm. ISIS video references the airstrikes as one of their grievances, including after the London attacks. I just want to understand why speed is so important. When I think of military battle, I think of precision as being right. like the the word of this moment given technology. Right. Why is everything in the eyes of the Americans, and now we're learning the... Mm -hmm. uh, the Iraqis and the coalition forces, why do they need such speed? Well, what their complaint to me was, was that the rules in place are just too restrictive, right? There's too many assurances that are demanded of them before the hit can be taken. And that over and over again, you know, they're seeing ISIS cars get away, ISIS IEDs being planted. This, this is their perspective, right? Mm -hmm. Now, of course, we don't know how many lives were saved, how many civilian lives were saved through these more restrictive measures. The thing that complicates all of this is a tactic that ISIS has been using hmm. for some time now. We know that ISIS studies the way we do things and studies our rules of engagement, and they know that if civilians are present, that most likely the U.S.-led coalition will not take the hit. And one, one example that I think really brings us to the fore is the story of Junaid Hussein. Junaid Hussein is a 21-year-old hacker turned jihadist from Birmingham 
who runs the IS information and recruitment arm from Syria. He's linked to numerous foiled attacks in America and beyond. Known as Abba Hussein, he has been identified by the United States Secret Service as a top five target for elimination by drone strike. According to the reporting of our colleagues, the coalition knew where he was in Raqqa and wasn't able to take the hit for week after Mm. week because he kept on going outside in the company of his elementary school-aged stepson. So strategy works. Right. So he, he knew, he knew that if the child is with him, the coalition won't take the hit. And they finally got him on the one day he went outside without the kid. What you just said about how ISIS believes that the U.S. won't attack a fighter, even a fighter it really values and wants to take out if a child is present. Right. It makes me wonder if this most recent attack, which killed so many civilians, will challenge that Mm. assumption. Right. And challenge it in a way that that might ultimately, if perversely, benefit the United States and Iraq. Will it dispel the ISIS belief Mm -hmm. that human shields work? Right. Um, Well, (laughs) probably not, because look at the fallout from this incident. I mean, I think it already has changed something. We've heard that the fighting in Mosul has now been paused because Mm. because of this one incident. Right. I mean, that's a very large military decision that has been made. You know, if anything, going forward, the Iraqi army and the coalition is going to have to really double down and show that they are taking reasonable measures to avoid civilian loss. Hmm. Thank you, Rukmini. Thank you, Michael. It might come out in the investigation onto the strike that there was an ISIS fighter among Hmm. these people, right? And that's when it becomes very complicated. We'll be right back. This fall, history is happening. September 14th, 2021. Hamilton, the Tony, Grammy, Olivier, and Pulitzer Prize-winning musical, returns to Broadway. Tickets are on sale now. Performances begin September 14th. Hamilton, back on Broadway at the Richard Rogers Theater. Learn more at hamiltonmusical.com. Here's what else you need to know today. Throughout the, the campaign and the transition, Jared served as the official primary point of contact with foreign governments and officials until we had State Department officials up. The Times reports that Jared Kushner, the president's son-in-law, will be questioned by senators investigating his ties to Russian officials. So he doesn't believe he owes the American public an explanation. For what, doing his job? Meeting with, but you're, you're acting as though there's something nefarious about doing what he was actually tasked to do. The Senate Intelligence Committee wants to know why Kushner met with the Russian ambassador and the head of a Russian state-owned bank shortly after the election. And in the House, the chairman of the Intelligence Committee, Representative Devin Nunes, is facing questions over his conduct while investigating ties between Trump and Russia. I recently confirmed that on numerous occasions, the intelligence community incidentally collected information about U.S. citizens involved in the Trump transition. Nunes now says that the source of his controversial claim was an official from the Trump White House. You cannot have the person in charge of an impartial investigation be partial to one side. It's an inherent contradiction. On Monday, the most powerful Democrat in Congress, Senator Chuck Schumer, said that Nunes should no longer oversee the committee. I sincerely worry that under his direction, Mr. Nunez is pushing the committee into a direction of obsequiousness and not one that is asking the hard questions 
and getting the important answers. That's it for The Daily. I'm Michael Barbaro. See you tomorrow. When times became uncertain, Wampley pivoted their technology platform and committed to help small businesses and self-employed workers get approved for their PPP loan. In just a few months, Wampley has helped one million businesses across America to secure much-needed funding so they can continue to stay open and serve their communities. Wampley helps small businesses thrive. Visit Wampley.com to learn more.